But what would you do to hear, well done, now good and faithful servant? We come to a letter, normally we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, etc. here. We come to a letter uh, in Paul's last letter that he as a servant of Jesus Christ sold out to Jesus... 2 Timothy, his last letter, written really from death row as he's in the dungeon awaiting his impending execution from Nero, answers that question for us today. Paul answers that question. If he had a, a, a limited amount of time left to live, what would he do to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Now, let me remind you, he's in a dungeon. His wrists are bound. He has no hope as far as in this life. His, 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 he, he will be executed by, by Nero, the emperor of Rome. So what is he going to do? What's his heartbeat? What's his passion? Well, his passion is making disciples. And he has made, a, made many disciples. One in particular, he has trained to carry on the work that he will continue after Paul is gone. Timothy here. And his answer is this. It is to pass the baton of multiplying by the grace of God to others. It is to pass the baton of multiplying God's mission here by the grace of God to others. See, we've been working through through several, several stages and we began in Acts chapter 17 and looked at those who are not curious and, and, uh, and not hungry for the Gospel or hungry for Jesus. And, and maybe the, the not curious would say, I'm, I'm convinced of a, of, a, of, a, of a different truth or I'm generally skeptical or I'm focused on other things in life or I have no real interest in Jesus and His message. And honestly, the not curious stage are probably the majority of the people we may encounter in most cases. And there, uh, um, many times might be the most difficult, certainly, to engage and help move along the path to Jesus here. There might be some different categories of those who are not curious, those who might be loyal to a non-Christian faith and maybe suspicious of others, those who might be skeptical of, of, of all faiths, and maybe Christianity in particular. Uh, those who might be completely oblivious to Jesus um, through uh, ignorance or distraction, etc. And we know that we cannot lead a ho- we can lead a horse to water, but we can't make him drink. But we can salt the oats, as someone had said. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul salts the oats with those who are who are not curious about Jesus, those who are skeptical, and he connects them with truths that we all know as human beings, and and centers those and brings them to a head in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 17, he looked at some principles from that. And then secondly, we looked at those who are curious. Those who are curious, maybe uh, hungry about Jesus. They're curious enough about Jesus to investigate His life and His teachings. Uh, They might have a lot of questions like, how do I know it's real? Or how can I experience God myself? Or what a relationship, what will the relationship with God do for me? And they might have some questions about specific Christian beliefs. Um... And you can think of some people in the Scriptures like that. The Ethiopian eunuch, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus. We honed in in John 4, the woman at the well. Where Jesus says, go get your husband. Go get your husband. And He, and he, he begins to, to show her why He is the living water. And He's the only one can can satisfy it. And the responsibility with those of us who, who encounter people who are curious about Jesus, they, they want to know more, is this. 
We want to steward that curiosity toward the truths of Scripture and say, this is what it says. This is what you must believe. You see, it's ultimately not curiosity that saves a person. That might lead them to search the Scriptures here, but it's the, it's the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of Scriptures here, that they need to understand that Jesus is calling them to repent and live in dependence in Jesus and what He has done. So that's our responsibility here, to help the curious come to Jesus. And Jesus does this with a wonderful example in John chapter 4. And the last time I preached in this series here, uh, we looked at the stage of believer. This is someone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ alone, by, uh, by, by in faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through what the Scriptures say alone. And, and they are, but they are still in the stage of where they are dependent on being fed spiritually by others. They know that their, their thoughts and attitudes and, and, and actions have, have, have created a broken relationship with God and that Jesus was God and he, had, he has come to fix that relationship through His death and His resurrection. And through trust in what Jesus has done for them that restores their relationship to God, enables them to have a new life with God. The Holy Spirit lives with them. And this new life means that, that, that Jesus uh, of the Bible, the God of the Bible, is the center of their life here. And Jesus has called them to a community of other believers, a church, and, and those believers are to help them to live like Jesus. And they might not know where to start in their Bibles. They might not know, well, what do I say to God in prayer? Uh, they don't know where to start. And so people who are, are believers here are people who need to be discipled, grow deeper, understand the, the gaps in their, in their lives, and have people come alongside and say, this is what it means to pray. This is what it means to read your Bible and meditate on it. This is what it means to practice the one another's of the New Testament as church family and church body. This is what it means to share your faith with the lost. And that's a believer. That's a believer. And then we looked at the stage here with Birch last time uh, in the series here of disciple. And Birch shared with us Philippians 3. A disciple. This is someone who is being fed and they are feeding themselves spiritually. And honestly, I don't want to put a uh, false divide here between someone who comes to Christ and is saved and baptized uh, uh, and, and, and uh, a believer and a disciple. Because when, when, when you have, have declared yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. But I want to share a little bit of a nuance here, a little bit of a more of a nuance here. This is someone who 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 is feeding themselves uh, spiritually here. This is someone who who uh, and honestly a believer stage here should be a very very short uh, amount of time, especially if we have people here who are serious about seeing other people grow. The disciple would say, "Is God's working my life more and more? I'm learning to see His, see what He says in the Scriptures. I'm trying to obey what I understand. Uh, uh, following Jesus, I understand means lining my life up with Jesus' teachings and 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 depending on His grace to do that and abiding in Him. I'm seeing more and more of my my sin more clearly, and and I'm asking God to to forgive and change me more regularly here and grow into who Jesus is. And God's putting in my heart a desire to connect uh, others with Him like I had. I'm nervous about this though. I'm nervous about this. And this is a stage where 
You're growing in Christ. You're realizing the gap between you and the Lord Jesus. You know Christ. You're on your way to you have eternal life with Christ, but you want to grow into who Jesus is. And Paul says in Philippians three that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, knowing Him. You see, many times as believers we come to Jesus Christ. And we are, we are saved as we understand where we were and our sin condemns us and weighs us down like a heavy millstone on our neck and we need Jesus to rescue us and save us. And we call upon Jesus to save us. And so sometimes we look at our, our salvation as simply a, a, a getting away from, from, the, from the penalty and consequences of sin. We come to Christ that way. And then we need to grow more into who Jesus is. I think one of the marks of maturity uh, among, among us who are believers and disciples growing in God is that we understand the, the depth of God's, of, of God's love for us as His sons. We grow deeper into that. So a disciple uh, needs to grow in confidence that God can use them to help the others grow in their faith. And that they have permission and authority from Jesus Christ Himself as they're pursuing Christ to disciple others. And to know that discipling is difficult, messy, and sometimes failing work. Which leads us to the stage we're going to begin today. Today I want you to be hearers of the Word. Next week we'll look more into the doer part of this. Some of the practical stuff here. But today I want you to look as we as we uh, as was read by uh, Warren this morning in 2 Timothy 2, a disciple maker now. Disciple maker. Disciple maker. This is someone who is being fed. This is someone who has a regular pattern and rhythm here of feeding themselves. And this is someone who is not just taking it in for themselves, but they are a fountain, they are spreading it, they are feeding others as well. And friends, I want us to understand if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, that that one command of go and make more disciples, we cannot be exempt from. When Jesus says in Matthew 28 that to, to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, and to teach them to obey whatsoever I have commanded them, that teaching whatsoever I have commanded them, to obey whatsoever I have commanded them, that making disciples is part of one of the commands of Jesus Christ. A very important one. We cannot be exempt from that. And you cannot pursue Jesus very long without having your heart open wide to that. Without that being a desire to be able to, to spread the truth of Jesus. That Jesus is glorious in our lives. And He is who He says He is in the Word of God. And we have experienced and tasted of who He is. And we will want others to experience this and grow and be rooted and built up in Him as well, and not depend on other people to do that for us. So disciple-maker is valuable, key, and this is the tip of the spear, so to speak. We focus on disciple-making. A lot of these other things will follow here. And Paul here, as he passes the baton, knows this has to be the thing he passes on to Timothy. He said, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace... That is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in in Christ Jesus. What I want us to see this morning is that we need to access the ability. Paul 
speaks to Timothy with this command here to access the ability that is not found in Timothy, but it is found in the grace that's in Jesus Christ to do this task. The Christian life requires strength through God's grace. Jesus said in John 15, Without me you can do nothing. The branches must be attached to the vine. The vine is attached to the branches. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And so that's the very first thing that Paul says about this task. That it is characterized by dependent responsibility. Now, when you hear these words, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus here, you, 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 might, you might feel like there's a little bit of a contradiction here. Because Timothy's been exhorted to strengthen himself, to be ready for, for service for the Lord. You might picture an old cowboy in an old western uh, telling, telling his other cowboy, to let's cowboy up, right? Uh, to be strong, ready to take on the hardships of service here. But this is a call to personal. This is a call to personal strength in the service of God. But Paul says, "Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus." He's calling on Timothy to be ready to work, but to do so utterly reliant on the power, the grace, the kindness of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's he's not to, he's not to summon up strength within himself and do the best he can. He is to be utterly dependent on the grace and power that's in Jesus. So we see that Christian life is a matter of dependent responsibility. Sometimes we might live the Christian life as if, well, God saved us and now it's up to us, right? We think the Lord saved me by His grace and now the rest is up to me. Or we might think, well, the Lord's done it all. I just need to sit back and relax and let God do the rest here. And, and, and because it's about grace anyway, right? And the Apostle Paul tells us these, these are both incorrect attitudes. There are places where we're told to, to push, to follow, to pursue righteousness. Uh, there are places where we are, we are, we are told um, uh, to, to be strong, like this passage here, to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Here, and, and what he wants us to understand is that in every aspect of the Christian life, whether you're worshiping, whether you're serving people that are hard to serve, whether we are, we are taking risks for God, we will serve with all the resources that He has gifted us at the same time being in humble, dependent reliance upon God. It's not as though we sit back and let God do everything apart from us. We cooperate in the grace that's in Jesus Christ. There's a, there's, we're responsible and we're responsible and reliant on the grace of God. That's the way God designed it. So access the reality. Lord, tell me to do what you want me to do, and then enable me. Give me power to do the things you called me to do. Pray and we work. Depend and we work. The story of a man who had a small struggling business and he was just ahead of his creditors, so he'd work all day long, he would come home and eat, and then he'd go back to the office. And he wasn't working. He was worrying or fretting about his company. He had all kinds of sleepless nights. He didn't want to take vacation days or he closed the, closed the shop on, on holidays because he thought, well, we might lose business. We, that would keep the doors open and, and pay the employees and the taxes and put food on the table for the rest of the month. And he worked and he worked, but he could never rest. He could never rest. He didn't trust that God would supply his need. He worked, but he wouldn't be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, there was a woman who also had a small business and she worked hard. She went to work early, she stayed late, she came home, and she stopped thinking about work. 
When holiday came, she closed up shop. It didn't matter how much needed to be brought in the next week before payroll was to come. When it was vacation time, she sent the employees home, closed the shop for a week. They took time off. She slept well every night. She worked hard. She didn't worry or fret. What was going on? She's working and she's trusting. She's working and she's trusting God to supply what she couldn't make happen. She couldn't make new business come in the door. She couldn't guarantee tomorrow. But she did what she could. She worked all the same time. She's trusting God to supply. And Paul is calling us to be strong, and not in our own power, but in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Because, friends, you will find this throughout the pages of Scripture, won't you? And some of you can stand up today and testify to the truth of this. That what God calls us to do, He supplies by His Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And as He calls us to do this task of disciple-making, He promises He will supply the strength we need to do what He's called us to do. So access the grace. Be strong in the grace of Christ. It's a gift that must be received. It's a gift that must be accessed here. It's, it's, this is because the Christian life here is not a life of laziness. These verses that Warren uh, read very clearly show us that this is hard. There's a reason it's called work. It's difficult. It's not a life of ease. And so here's, friends, some suggestions here how you can access the grace. First of all, know the gracious nature of our God. Know the gracious nature of our God. Titus 2, 11-15, Paul talks and says, it's God's grace that brought salvation to all men. And then he says, it's the grace that trains us, disciplines us as well. This is the gracious nature of our God. He, he's deliver, he delivers grace. He gives strength to the weak. He gives rest to the weary. He gives freedom to the captives. He gives restoring to the brokenhearted. He gives faithfulness to even the unfaithful. He is good news to the poor. He is sight to the blind. He is food to the hungry. He is healing to the leper. He is walking to the lame. Gives walking to the lame. Know the gracious nature of our God. And know His Son, the vine. The vine who flows into us. Think about the Son and God's grace. He intercedes for us. Jesus is praying for us right now. He transforms our wills to His Father's, Romans 8 says. He hears our cries for help. He hides us in Him. We're buried with Him. We're raised to new life in Him. We're beloved in Him. He goes before us as the pioneer and captain of our souls. He enables us. He's our fixed point of focus, looking into Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. He's the start and the end of our faith. He empowers us as He is the vine and we're the branches and without Him we can do nothing. And He helps us to obey by giving us His Spirit to control us and His Word to dwell within us. He warns and blesses us. So, access His grace by knowing the gracious nature of our God, by knowing His Son, the vine. And then, there's a responsibility part. Take His grace by faith. Timothy already had that grace. It saved him. Timothy needed to remember that grace was to be a continual source of power for Christian living. Particularly, cooperating in God's mission to make disciples of all nations. 
What does James say in James 4.6? He gives more grace. He gives more grace. More grace was always available for Timothy to continue to finish the goal. And more grace is always available for us. We cannot outlast, we cannot outmeasure, we cannot outuse God's grace to finish the ministry of making disciples as individuals of South Oak Community Church. Next 20, Paul calls the Bible the word of grace that is able to build us up. Why is that so? It helps us understand our God loves us. He forgives us. He purifies us. He helps us. He comforts us. He enables us. He secures us. And this strengthens us by His grace to do His work to make disciples and not quit. And Timothy had to not only know this, but he had to act in faith upon what he had been given in Christ to do the job God had given to make disciples. He had to yield to this power. Notice he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He had to yield his will to this power in Christ in order to be strengthened by it. Because here's the truth. It is only when you understand how well cared you are how well cared for you are by the Lord, that you will care for His mission and you'll care for others. When you care well for others and you care well for God's mission, it's because you understand how He has cared well for you. And so that's His first point. Access the ability, the grace that doesn't come in and of yourselves, but it's in Christ. And secondly, multiply the ministry. Multiply the ministry. Someone asked Billy Graham, what would you do differently if you started all over? And he said, well, what I would do is if I was a pastor of a church, I would invest in 12 men like Jesus did. That would be my focus for quite a bit of time. And I would leave the other things up to the Lord. You see, in verse 2, Paul says, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Look at the different generations there. In that verse, verse 2, how many different generations are there? Well, first of all, there's the one speaking, Paul, right? And he's speaking to Timothy, so that's two. And he tells Timothy to then trust these things to faithful men, so that's three. And then these faithful men who were able to teach others also, that's four. Four generations. Someone has summed up uh, these kind of men in verse 2 as fat men. F-A-T. Faithful, available, and teachable. They are, they are teachable. They, 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 are, they, they have been taught to obey what Christ has commanded. And the proof in them is that they are reproducing it. They are living in a way that they would want to be reproduced. Jesus. They are becoming what they are in Jesus Christ. And that is, and that is multiplying. These are men, in verse 2, who get it. They get it. They get the mission. They get the Gospel. They understand God's high priority on this at His church. And these are men who not only get it, but they want it. These are men who want it. These are men who who have not uh, who, who 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 don't have a laundry list of excuses in multiplying the ministry. These are men who want this. 
These are men who, who know that for, for God's mission to continue on, He has put the responsibility on us by His power, by His strength, to do these very things. To see the teaching of Jesus Christ multiplied and modeled here. And these are men who are willing, because He says in verse 2, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able... Uh, the idea of able is the idea of reaching their capacity to teach others also. These are men who are reaching their capacity to multiply it. They're growing. They want to grow. They get it. They want it. And they want to reach their capacity, their potential, and however God has gifted them, and however He has made them, to see His Gospel multiplied in the lives of people. Why is this so important? Well, it went from... Paul, Timothy, and now faithful men, and now others also. Because this is multiplication. Dawson Trotman said, we are born to reproduce. We are born to reproduce. Rich Stearns, who's the president of of World Vision, talks about this domino theory here of, of spiritual impact. So imagine a long line of dominoes. When one falls, of course, you start a, a chain reaction. You see dozens or hundreds more dominoes to fall. So Jesus... Sets up these 12 dominoes, so to speak. His disciples. He mentors, he disciples, he, he gets them in, in, in the Word, he, he gives them opportunities, responsibilities, he gives them authority, permission, he empowers them with the Holy Spirit, and he sends them off to go and do likewise. And look at the result. Look at the result 2,000 years later. In the 1880s, Robert Wilder, a missionary kid from India, was preparing to return to the mission field. And during college, he even signed a pledge along with his friends to become a missionary. But he was so physically uh, frail, he wasn't able to fulfill that pledge. And and, and instead, he encouraged others to take up the task because he couldn't go to the field. And so one domino fell. And during a preaching tour that took Robert through Chicago, he spoke to an audience that included Samuel Samuel Moffat. And Samuel also signed Robert's pledge. And two years later, he landed in Korea. And so another domino fell. And a few years later, Samuel shared that gospel with a man who became disillusioned with some of his, his um, uh, religious practices uh, uh, there in Asia. And Kyo Sun Chu trusted Christ, and a third domino fell. And in 1907, Kyo was one of the leaders of Pyongyang Revival. This, this Pyongyang was, is the capital of North Korea today. This is a long time before communism. And in January of that year, spontaneous prayer and confession began to break out during in, the, in, the, in, the, in, this, in these Korean churches. And thousands of dominoes fell. And those days of fervent prayer and, and multiplying the truth and, and, and investing in people uh, are considered today the birth of an independent, self-sustaining Korean church. And when he died, Kiel died in, in 1935, 5,000 people attended his funeral. And the church in Korea now numbers about 15 million and today sends more foreign missionaries than any other country outside the United States. Millions of dominoes will continue to fall. And you see, all of us is potential domino, aren't we? In the hands of God. We're all dominoes in this chain reaction that Jesus has set off 2,000 years ago. And the amazing thing about dominoes falling is always begins with what? With one. Always starts small. Some... Seemingly insignificant one. And you have no idea how big the impact will be as God multiplies faithfulness and hunger 
for His mission. Maybe you've heard this saying, you can count the apples on the tree, but you can't count the apples in the seed. And so it is with the influence of a single person. Let me give you another example. Edward Kimball. You probably have never heard of him. Most people haven't. But he was a Sunday school teacher who had some hyper boys in his Sunday school class. And he wasn't just teaching the material. He loved these guys. He didn't try to interact with them throughout the week. He'd try to connect with them. He would engage personally with each one of them to win them to the Lord and help them grow. And he decided he was going to be intentional with every single last one of them. There were many times with the frustration with, with, uh, with junior high boys, you can imagine here. He thought about throwing in the towel. It's like herding cats, right? I loved junior high age when I taught it, by the way. It was my favorite age. One young guy in particular didn't seem to understand what the gospel was about. So Kimball went to the shoe store where he was stocking shelves. And he says, Dwight, Moody, I want to speak to you in the stock room about what it is to know Christ. And in the stock room on that Saturday, Dwight L. Moody believed the gospel and received Jesus Christ as his Savior. And in his lifetime, Moody touched two continents for God, preached the gospel all over. The story doesn't end there. That's where it actually begins. Because under Moody, another man's heart was touched for God, a man named J. Wilbur Chapman. And Chapman became the evangelist who preached to thousands. And one day, there was a professional ball player who had the day off, and he attended one of J. Wilbur Chapman's meetings, and Billy Sunday was converted. And Billy Sunday quit baseball and became part of Chapman's evangelistic team. And Chapman accepted the pastorate of a large church. And then Billy Sunday then began his own evangelistic crusades. And there was another young man who was converted, whose name was Mordecai Ham. He was a scholarly, dignified gentleman. And uh, he, he came to Charlotte, North Carolina as an evangelist. And there was a sandy-haired, lanky young man in high school who vowed that he wouldn't go here and preach. But Billy Frankie, who was called by his family, eventually decided to go. And some of the students in that area decided to interrupt the meetings of Mordecai Ham. And Billy Frank wanted to go to see what would happen when they did that. And the night he went, he was intrigued by what he heard. And he turned another night. And God worked a powerful miracle in his soul and Billy Graham was converted by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Probably preached to more people than any other person who's ever lived. With the invention of radio and television, some estimate 2.2 billion, his work. Because one Sunday school teacher had a concern for his boys 100 years, 75 years or so before. So if you're tempted to give up, think about the Edward Kimballs, who we don't know. Persistence and faithfulness, honored by the Lord. Imagine if Edward Kimball didn't take time to get his know, know his students personally, get involved in their lives, to speak the truth to them. Didn't take his Saturday off to seek out young D.L. Moody. God uses those things. So you can count the apples on a tree, but you only God knows how many apples are in a single seed, right? I give you more examples in our own church. A young man who was under the ministry of Pastor McCowan 
And Skowhegan, who Pastor Finn Aramore would say, had a tremendous influence on his life and discipled him. Charlie Martz here, one of our deacons, those of you who knew him as a boy, would probably not sit here saying, that boy's going to be a deacon one day. Right? People poured into his life, Pastor Finnemore, others, Dr. Lowry. I just think of, and by the way, I, just, I don't care how mature you are in the Lord, someone, <laughs> people, people influence you, disciple you. Let me give you one, one simple example here. Uh, a few years ago, Nick and Hannah, God began developing in them a burden to uh, connect and reach some of the, uh, the brokenness of our families and our state. So they began to pursue safe families and got training through that. And they shared and, and Hannah coordinated get-togethers and just, just to pass this passion on. And, um, and, and, and one of the, those families interested in this and, and had a burden for it was our family. And God began to work in our hearts. And God allowed us this winter to have two little boys uh, and, uh, who stayed with us and, and taught us what it's like to endure suffering and to be strong in the grace in Jesus Christ and to connect with our mom. And tomorrow we're going to be able to pick up two more little kids, a uh, four-year-old and seven-year-old. Here's someone influencing and discipling the pastor, right? I give you another example here of what it's like to not see this happen. Uh, Gail, you shared with me as a young mom uh, came to the came to the Lord, young mom, uh, um, not knowing much about Jesus, felt lost in the fog, needed someone to come alongside and disciple her. Eventually, God, God, God helped and provided in that. But for so long, she felt, who can I go to? Who can share with me the truths of what this means and, the, and, and, and how the Scripture balances out here in this way? You can, you can express it better than I can here, Gail, but you're sharing your heart. I wish I would have had someone come along and disciple me. And Paul here wants to do this before it's too late. So many times we do things in ministry when it's late in the game, right? There's a fictitious manual for the Peace Corps volunteers for South America. And it offers advice on how to handle a chance encounter with an anaconda. And it's under this heading, what to do if you're attacked by an anaconda. Number one, if you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Number three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight against one another. Number four, the snake will begin to climb over your body. Number five, do not panic. Number six, the snake will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Number seven, step six will take a long time. (laughs) Number eight, after a while, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down and take your knife and very gently slide it into the snake's mouth and cut off its head. Number nine, be sure your knife is sharp. Number ten, be sure you have your knife. (laughs) It's tongue-in-cheek to show us here that you don't know what curves life will throw at you, what's lurking around the corner. But when you're called, you need to know what you're to do. You need to be prepared. And if you wait until the crisis hits, and you're not before the curve, you've waited too long, and you need to be prepared first. And Paul is saying here there's an urgency with this. We don't wait until we're in the snake. 
We don't look back three generations and say, boy, I wish we would have discipled those young people. There's an urgency here. Right away. Because it matters. And dominoes affect other things. And I'm not picturing God as a, you know, just randomly putting out dominoes. God is a God of order and plan here. But what I want you to understand is there is a responsibility we have. So many times Christians want to, oh, when it's bad, now we'll try to figure it out. But friends, God calls us to do His work now and beyond it. So, multiply the ministry. You are born to reproduce. Everything reproducing after its own kind. It's always been a pattern of God from creation. And thirdly and finally, fix the focus. Fix the focus. And when I say the word fix, I'm not meaning like like repair it, although that could be part of it. What I'm speaking of is a fixed focus. A focus that is steel-eyed. A focus that, that, is, that, is, that is set here. And here's the focus in verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. He says, suffer hardship with me. He's saying Christian life and this ministry of multiplication expects hardship. And it doesn't run from it. It embraces it. Paul's been let down by everyone in Asia Minor. This is a word of warning to Timothy. Paul's saying, Timothy, do not go into the Christian ministry thinking that the church and God's work is always going to come through for you. That's going to be a bed of roses. And he's not even necessarily speaking about an imperfect church. He's talking about the natural hardships of Christian life and ministry. He says, Timothy, here's the mindset. Here's the vision I want you to have. I want you to expect hardship so that you're not surprised when it comes along. Be surprised when it's easy. Because when building up the church turns out to be hard work, don't be discouraged by it. Expect it. Here's the attitude I want you to have. Be ready to suffer with me because we're suffering with Christ. Have a mindset that expects hard work and suffering in gospel life and ministry. And let's be honest, folks. There are demands of making disciples. And that is much of the reason why so few do it, isn't it? Here's the reality that it is work. And it is impossible to be done in flesh dependence instead of grace dependence. And why so many burn out and start but don't finish or are so overwhelmed they don't start at all. Because here's some reasons. Number one, it's a demand of time. No doubt about it. It will require you to step back. It will require you to simplify. It will require you to reprioritize. But I want to tell you, Matthew 6.33 says there is promise. If you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, there is reward. He'll provide the things you need in this life, and there is reward after. It demands time. And in our society today, we've got to put up some boundaries here. And we're not talking about multiplying ministry here as adding another thing into your life. But we need to step back and say, okay, I need to simplify. There are some things I need to reprioritize here. Secondly, emotional strength. Demands of emotional strength. Requires patience. Understanding. Compassion. Practicing the one another's. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, he had to know how the Thessalonians were doing. It was driving him crazy. He had to know so bad, but he couldn't get over there, and so he had to send Timothy to find out. 
took a lot of emotional strength out of them. Physical strength. You realize that this task of making disciples isn't convenient. And when is help needed? When it's convenient? When it's most inconvenient many times. Jesus was exhausted in the boat in Mark 4, sleeping. It will require, fourthly, financial, material resources. It will force you to make sacrifices. You might have to turn down jobs. You might have to turn down bids. You might have to turn down trips or positions or phone calls, etc. Because this soul here needs your guidance with the Word of God. It will demand a lack of public recognition. If you're in this to put notches in your belt, this is not for you. Few will know the hours, the counseling help, the study, the effort. But friends, I cannot tell you how glorious it is, and, some, and many of you know this, how glorious it is to see God's Spirit work and see people change right in front of you. It's amazing. Probably require rejection, misunderstanding, betrayal. All these things happen to Paul with the Corinthian church. And you'll be exposed to your personal inadequacies and your weakness that you can't do it yourself. You begin to realize more and more I am not omnicompetent. I am not omnigifted. I am not all powerful. I am not all present. I am not all knowing. I will fail. I will make mistakes. I will be tempted to quit. Paul says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's so important for us to grasp. We live in a society that cherishes ease and comfort. And when hardship comes, we're surprised by it, aren't we? We think something's wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. But this is the truth. Paul says, I want you to have a mindset of a soldier. I want you to have the mindset of an athlete. In the next verse, and I want you to have the mindset of a farmer. In Paul's day... For the for soldiers to the Roman army were recruited away from their jobs. You may be a farmer, you may be a blacksmith, but when you were a soldier, you left that. Some of them might have been farmers, but then they were recruited, placed in military service, served the Roman army. And maybe you can think of in the movie Gladiator, Caesar asks, asks uh, Maximus, how long have you been away from your wife and your home? And Maximus says, two years, 246 days, and this morning. It's the suffering, the hardship of a good soldier. And he's saying, Christian, be ready for the sacrifices and hardships that are called for in the Christian life. That does not mean sacrificing your family. Paul then speaks of the athlete. If you were in the ancient Greek games, you're required to come to the judges before the contest and swear to the god Zeus that you've been in training for ten months. Paul says you can't win the prize money unless you compete according to the rules. You've been training. You follow the guidelines here. You can't even compete for the prize, he says. And that's what Christian ministry is. It must be under God's terms. God's way. And then he speaks to the farmer. farmer gets his, his yield, but before that, what has he got to do? He's got to prepare the soil. What did he have to do before that? He had to cut down the trees, clear the stumps up, clear the rocks, plant the seed, endure the threats that come with weather. It's only then that he receives the reward. It's hard work. And all these images here, soldier, athlete, and farmer, are images that he gives us to remind us of the sacrifice and the hard work that's part and parcel here of the Christian ministry of making disciples. 
And so how does he bring this all together here? Verse 8. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Verse 8. Don't just pass over that. There's your power. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my Gospel. There's the power. Remember the mission that Jesus has given us in verse 9 and 10. Wherein I suffer trouble trouble, as an evildoer even in the bonds, but the Word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Remember Jesus' mission. There's no plan B. And thirdly, remember Jesus' promise of reward and also His warning in verse 11-13. through 13. It is a trustworthy saying, if we be dead with Him, we should also live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithfully, He cannot deny Himself. And fourthly, remember what really matters. What really matters. It's amazing. The guy, the soldier in the, uh, in the, in the foxhole in the front lines and the one who's not on the front lines that talk about what really matters. The guy in the front lines, in the trenches, he has a whole different priority system than the guy a thousand miles away in the Pentagon, right? Big difference. Big difference. And Paul will list some things in verses 11 through 13 that say, don't waste your time on these things. Spend your work for Christ in this. Remember what really matters. So if you had three years to live, what would you do to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? I'm going to pick up on this next week. Keep running and keep reproducing. Let's pray.